Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches. Break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Well, Chris, this week. What a week. It's all it's all what's going wrong. Some, and, uh, weeks, well, there, some there, weeks the show just writes itself, my friend. Well, I as, as the stories of the week unfolded, which involved two of your favorites, Felicia Sanmez at the two Washington Post faves of yours, Felicia Sanmez and what's her name? Taylor Lorenz. Taylor Lorenz. I said, I just said to myself, everything's coming up, Johnson. Everything is coming up, you. Like every card in the media deck that was turned over just came up aces over aces for Eliana Johnson. You, 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 your timeline has been blessed. I'm a lucky, lucky woman. Your timeline has been blessed. Okay, but you also dislike the Washington Post, and we have like a A to Z Washington Post week. Well, you know what I call, and I want to trademark it, what I call the Washington Post, America's worst big city newspaper. And I am prepared to defend this title for the Washington Post against all comers. I think you go to Boston, you go to Miami, you go to Chicago, you go to Los Angeles. And I'm not saying that these newspapers are perfect. I'm not saying that they're great. But I am saying that the Washington Post is America's worst big, do you want to? Keep talking. I know, I know, Keep I know. Keep talking. Well, I'm I was plugging in my laptop ju- here because we're going long on this Washington Post thing. I'm, I feel it in my bones. All right, here. Chris, let- what could possibly, like, stop a, a Steyer-Waltian uh, monologue? Always you. <laughs> <laughs> Always you. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning with this delicious Washington <laughs> Post meltdown Chris will not agree with my characterization, but Felicia Sanmez has broken out of the ink-stained wretches loony bin. It's your loony bin. To, it's not my loony bin. I do not associate myself with that term. To terrorize her colleagues. So the last time we checked in with her, Felicia, who I just want to get her title right. I believe she's a national reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, Washington Post national political reporter for the Washington Post was suing the Washington Post for gender discrimination after it barred her from covering sexual assault. Now, that lawsuit was tossed out of court. Uh, The judge said news media companies, and I'm quoting from the Post story about this, have the right to adopt policies that protect not only the fact, but also the appearance of impartiality. And he compared the editor's decision to hypotheticals like keeping a reporter who had spoken out about the personal impact of a relative's murder from covering stories about violent crime or a reporter who had just campaigned for a political party from covering elections. So she spoke out about being a victim of sexual assault and they prevented her from covering the Kavanaugh confirmation. And she threw a fit online, which is like basically, you know, a Tuesday for her. And she she sued them, and she her accusation was her accusation against a coworker or was it the oh it was like every editor at the post Steve Ginsburg Matea Gold you know 
Marty Baron, she was going after all of them, tagging them in tweets, naming them all in the lawsuit. You know, she's off her GD rocker. All right, all right. Well, she does. I will say this. I know that I think she has said publicly that she has struggled with mental health issues. and Obviously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. All right. So this week, so what fast forward to this week, and... Dave Weigel, another reporter at the Post. Ooh, t- tell, tell people who Dave Weigel is. I am going to tell okay. them. He's another reporter at the Post. Let's grab his, his title. He wrote a 600-page book. He covers he, politics for the Post. Dave Weigel wrote the authoritative book on progressive rock at like 600 and whatever pages. So if you ever wondered on Close to the Edge, what was the backstory behind Yeses, Close to the Edge, you, you can go to Dave Weigel's book. Dave is politically focused he is has an eccentric kind of beat and is terrible at twitter he he's sucks at twitter what did he tweet okay he i mean it was sort of funny but oh. so so he retweeted uh, a tweet from somebody who i'd never heard of who said all women are bi the question is whether it's sexual or polar Blech. and he retweet he retweeted it now here's the thing it is definitely sexist, but my compl- sure. my complaint with it is not it's sexism, it's lame. It's, it's lame. a dumb lame it's joke, lame. right? This is not a funny make me a sandwich oriented kind of joke. This is a what's lame. make me a sandwich? And women have have taken this over about so there's the old like shut up and make me a sandwich. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this isn't oh, even that's like funny because. On Summer House, which is my I, this Bravo show that what, I love. What terrible television show is this? This amazing Bravo show about these people who go to the Hamptons. <laughs> One of the chicks, uh, the guy, like, asks her to make him a sandwich. We is, should, this we'll, like we'll this is this like no, Jersey Shore? Is this like Jersey Shore? No, no, it's like these people from New York who go to the Hamptons. But the girl has a meltdown, and she's like, And how many sandwiches have you made me? <laughs> ah! Maybe she's going to work at the Washington Post. But anyway, dumb tweet. Okay, Felicia's response was not quite dumb tweet. She had a complete meltdown, and Dave's response was deleting his tweet and apologizing, but that was not enough for Felicia. She starts tagging all her bosses and asking whether the newsroom is going to tolerate this behavior. And tagging her bosses is like a total power play. Like, are you going to do something? Showing she's really in charge. Anyhow, they they suspend Dave Weigel. Yep. For do we know for month, how long? One, one month? One month without pay. Dag nabbit. One month without pay. We are linking that story. That is a dag nabbit. That's a, I mean. One month without pay. I know I don't know what he makes, but I know what I know what reporter salaries are like. Uh, a month without pay, uh, they're gonna hurt. Okay, so you would think that is where the story ends, but in fact, that is where our story begins. <laughs> that is where our story begins because, well, you know, Chris, in the past when we've talked about by Felicia, we have said like it's amazing how people just watch her bully and throw her weight around. Somebody actually did speak up and fight back. Jose Del Real, who is a Washington Post re- reporter. He's also on the national desk. I th- he's watching this go down. He's a reporter and features writer at the Post. He took to Twitter, and this is all playing out publicly on Twitter. So he takes to Twitter 
and starts fighting back against and, Felicia and, 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 and I, speaking up for Dave. And I think that the context, well, not really speaking up for Dave, but the, but attacking Felicia. The the context here is we've talked about it with Taylor Lorenz at the New York Times. We've talked about it with other outlets and other things. There is a trend, and I don't know how old a person Felicia Sanmez is, but there is a, a thing that has happened, and it's not just in the news business, it's at Netflix, it's at everywhere, which is instead of working through the system internally, and then ultimately as a last resort, if you cannot get a solution internally, that you then take your complaints public, they go, and I assume Sanmez, how quickly did Sanmez respond to Weigel, was it right away? Right away, in real like, time. Yeah, before he could delete the tweet. Yes, he deleted it. I think because she, because she started throwing a hissy fit. So that the, what's inappropriate here, of course, and fundamentally inappropriate, is that they are coworkers, and as a consequence, if she sought a remedy professionally for this, that she should have alerted her boss and their boss and talk about it that way. She had a problem, not take it to Twitter. So this is this is a problem, not just in the news business, but it particularly afflicts the news business where people are glued to their Twitters. All right, so Jose decides to tell Felicia to knock it out. And with that, Chris, we have a freaking epic treat for our listeners this week. Colin. Welcome to Wretch's Theater for a dramatic reading of the Twitter fight between Felicia Sanmez and Jose Del Riel. At J Del Riel. Felicia, we all mess up from time to time. Engaging in repeated and targeted public harassment of a colleague is neither a good look, nor is it a particularly effective. It turns the language of inclusivity into clout chasing and bullying. I don't think this is appropriate. At J Del Riel. Dave's retweet is terrible and unacceptable, but rallying the internet to attack him for a mistake he made doesn't actually solve anything. We all mess up in some way or another. There is such a thing as challenging with compassion. At Felicia Sanmez. Jose, Dave's retweet was indeed terrible and unacceptable. It was also public, and it's important that all those who saw Dave's tweet also see Washington Post reporters standing up for our newspaper's values, one of which is that comments denigrating women will not be tolerated. At Felicia Sanmez, you may view it as a simple matter of someone, quote, messing up, unquote. I view it differently. My timeline this past day has been full of women, reporters, readers, sources, wondering whether this means they can't trust the Post to report on them and for them. At J. Del Riel. Blocks at Felicia Sanmez. At Felicia Sanmez. So far, I've received no apology from my colleague for baselessly accusing me of engaging in, quote, bullying, unquote, quote, harassment, unquote, and, quote, cruelty, unquote, just for objecting to a sexist tweet. I did, however, receive an email from him accusing me of fostering a, quote, toxic workplace, unquote, and now this. A very normal, inclusive, respectful, and healthy work environment for women, exclamation point. At J. Del Real deactivates account. At J. Del Real reactivates account. At J. Del Real. Last night, I came under an unrelenting series of attacks intended to tarnish my professional and personal reputation. The cause? 
some tweets I sent calling for compassion within our workplace. Those attacks continued this morning. At J Del Real, in hopes of de-escalating, I temporarily deactivated my account amid a barrage of online abuse directed by one person, but carried out by an eager mob. The one-sided attacks continued even after I stopped engaging. I know the old adage, hurt people hurt people. But what then? At J Del Real, I will just say that I am proud to be part of a workplace where contrary to the impression created on this forum, many people are actively engaged in the work of dismantling systems of sexism, racism, and homophobia. Sometimes that work is loud and sometimes it's quiet. At J Del Real, as the only Mexican-American reporter on the national desk, I know the sting of discriminatory systems firsthand. Anyone who wants you to believe they alone are trying to fix it is doing a disservice to the amazing team effort unfolding, of which I am proud to be a part. It will not surprise you, Eliana Johnson, to know that that's my favorite thing we've ever done. That was fun. That was fun. I think we have uh, you, Chris, you. I I do not have a future in acting, but you you pure might. ham, it's pure ham over here. Okay, pure ham. Okay, so that is still not the end of it. It never ends. Sally Busby is the new boss over at the Washington Post, and she is watching her minions over there, like duke it out like this. Duke on it out with Twitter with, with reporters from other outlets chiming in, totally goading them on, blah but, blah 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 blah. But basically, with each other, and we're recording on Wednesday morning. Correct. Wednesday, June eighth of June. So I have here an email. From Sally Busby, sent to Washington Post staff, dated Tuesday, June 7th, 4.18 p.m. And here we have a Dear Colleagues memo, okay, sent from Sally Busby. Dear colleagues, in this newsroom, we share many important common values. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, we'll get to the good part. So today, in the strongest terms, I want to reiterate the importance of the following policies which we will enforce. We do not tolerate colleagues attacking colleagues, either face-to-face or online. Respect for others is critical to any workplace, basically, including our newsroom. The newsroom social media policy points specifically to the need for collegiality. We also do not tolerate violations of our policy prohibiting workplace harassment and our policy on prohibition of discrimination, which further set forth our expectations for employees and are designed to create an inclusive environment for all po- so all post employees can perform their best work, yada yada. To be clear, we will enforce our policies and standards. Basically, that's her memo with a lot of filler, such as the combination of shared values and diversity of views- viewpoints is our greatest strength. Which so, obviously so, it is not, Sally. So she says, don't, don't tweet sexist jokes, but more, but also but if you attack your colleagues. Don't like, attack your colleague publicly. Uh, don't, but if you do, you know, we'll suspend you if you tweet the sexist joke. And if you attack your colleagues publicly, you know, we'll probably look the other way because Felicia is still tweeting. Is she really? She's still tweeting. So, so let's go current, to her. What's this our, is this is this the, is where we the San Mesometer. Okay. This is where we leave it. So the, the San the San memo, This memo goes out at four eighteen yesterday. Okay. And she 
the Busby memo says the news the newsroom social media policy points specifically to the need for collegiality. So Sanmez, like, you know, ten minutes after this goes out, screen grabs Jose Del Re- Del Real blocking her and writes, So I hear the Washington Post is a collegial workplace. Oh boy. And then says puts all his tweets in screen grabs, the ones that we read dramatically, and says, these tweets falsely accusing me of clout chasing, bullying, cruelty, and directing an eager mob to carry out a barrage of online abuse are still up, even after I repeatedly raised them to management and noted that I've been receiving threats and abuse. Collegial! Exclamation point. And then one of her colleagues replies, please stop. And she responds, please stop, dot, 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 requesting the tweets from a colleague falsely accusing me of bullying and clout chasing be taken down. So she is like goading management. Well, I was I was going to say, it sounds to me like a person who wants to get fired. Totally. Right? Like she is daring them to fire she her. Is. And she knows they don't so want to fire her. the question to me is. Well, but, but so if I were Sally Busby, I would say to Felicia Sanmez, Felicia, here's the deal. We want you to cover Loudoun County schools. We want you to cut. Co- we want you to cover Fredericksburg City Council. Here's your new beat: no cut in pay. Your lawsuit for getting to choose your own beat has already been thrown out of court. We want you to head down to Fredericksburg, take your laptop, and see you later. And and let her keep tweeting and and maroon her out there until she gets tired of it and quits. Because if you fire her. Then you make a martyr out of her. I would grind her down until she... That is so not what I would do. You say make a martyr out of her. Chris, I would make an example out of her, which is, like, we say we don't tolerate this, and you know what, Sally, I'm new. I'm, I'm Sally. I'm new in the job. We say we don't tolerate this. Dave, we don't tolerate this. And you know what, Felicia, we also don't tolerate this. You're out. You're out, girlfriend. You're I, out. I, I think she would be a hero to her followers. Uh, and I would. Great. I, she can be like a hero to all the freaking mental <laughs> cases online. That's great. I, I, I She's w- a hero to them regardless. I would exile her, not fire her. And the message would be clear to other reporters that if you. And by the way, if I were the, if I were the executive editor of The Washington Post, I would say something else. Stop tweeting. Stop tweeting. The the can you imagine yeah, how many but... hours how many hours did these goofuses spend on this this week? I mean, it's a freaking twenty preschool. hours. She runs a preschool. Twenty hours, thirty. We didn't I even don't... get to uh, all the post reporters tweeting in like in succession last night. How they're so proud to work. This is such a collegial workplace and it's Ugh. not perfect. So they all start like echoing each other about what a wonderful workplace it is. And a like little a Trump, birdie, like a Trump cabinet meeting. Yeah. So like <laughs> it was, it was. And so a little birdie told me that they're trying to goad her to attack them and violate this policy. Oh my and gosh. So that they can go to management and say, okay, here clearly she's violating the policy as if she's not already in violation of it, and they're, like, trying to get her fired, basically. If anybody out there is listening. So the question is, Sally Busby, in my view. Yes. Don't nobody attach Chris to me. Like, do you have the cojones to do it? If there are any billionaires listening, Eliana and I will start a newspaper. We will start a, a, a news outlet 
And one of the first rules will be for all reporters, deactivate your Twitter account. You may not, you may not tweet. Would you be on board with that if we can get staked? Totally. Okay. No, no tweet. Totally. Yes. All right. Okay, good. But it would really be like, you know how kids used to get sent off to like, well, there still is cotillion and all these manners. I did schools. cotillion. My son yeah, cotillion. That's what it, basically not being on Twitter is would be the equivalent of that for kids these days. No TikTok, no Twitter. And 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 also act right, right? Have you ever heard of act right? It's what your mom gives you when she hits you on the back of the head. She gave you a little bit of act right ah, and she's just, I need some water after all that. She smacks you on the back of the head and gives you a little act right. These kids need some act right. Oh man. Our next item is also I know that's what I'm saying. Washington Everything's Post. coming up Johnson. Oh. Everything's coming up Johnson. <laughs> okay. Before all of this by Felicia stuff, there was a brouhaha over Taylor Lorenz. A kerfuffle an epic, an epic correction appended one of to the a great, Taylor Lorenz story. One of the great corrections. I mean, it, I, it truly, I curate corrections so and amplifications and clarifications, and the New York Times are usually the best because they're the most labored, but this may be the greatest correction of all time. Okay, so... This correction is on a story that Taylor Lorenz wrote about how her subject matter, like content creators and, you know, teenagers Taylor on Lorenz, YouTube, whatever. Taylor Lorenz is, is a reporter. Oh, they all know. Well, All she, the listeners know. For any new listeners, she is a reporter who worked for the New York Times, who somehow the New York Times fobbed off on the Washington Post. Yeah, they managed to foist what a, her on the, the One of the great con jobs uh, of all time was somehow to, to get the Washington Post to hire this woman who was savagely attacking her colleagues on Twitter and writing twaddle. It's a trend. And somehow they managed to get the Washington Post to okay, take so her off she, their hands. She writes that these two YouTubers, one of them called Legal Bite and the other called The Umbrella Guy, which I like, that they're just raking it in with content about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Okay. And and then the YouTubers, they come out of the woodwork and they say, what the hell? You didn't contact us for comment and what you say about us is not accurate. So here, here's the correction posted. And did the story did the story have any angle to it? Was she was it negative? Was it accusatory it wasn't negative, toward them? She said that they're making a lot of money and about one of them she said he made 80 grand in a month. Okay. Which, I mean, that'd be nice. Sign me up for uh, oh, content not, creation. That's around. what I'm getting for this podcast. Oh. You do, you're <laughs> not getting up, the. That's what. Sign me up for That's what they're creation. paying me. That's what I get for this. Um, okay, so here's the editor's note. The first published version of this story incorrectly stated, or stated incorrectly, that internet influencers, a light mazeka and that umbrella guy, <clears throat> had been contacted for comment before publication. I.e., like you know, when that you're the reporter to. did the yes. basic job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact. Only Mazeka was asked via Instagram. <laughs> After this story was published, the post continued to seek comment from Mazeka via social media and queried that umbrella guy for the first time. During that process, the post received the incorrect statement from removed the, removed the incorrect statement from the story, but did not note its removal, a violation of our corrections policy. The story has been updated to note that Mazeka declined to comment for this story and that umbrella guy could not be reached for comment. That's not it, Chris. There's more. That's but wait, it. there's more. That's not it. A previous version of this story also inaccurately attributed a quote to Adam Waldman, a lawyer for Johnny Depp, 
The quote described how he contacted some internet influencers and has been removed. Have you ever seen in the, Have you ever seen in the beginning of The Simpsons where the the guy is handling? I don't. I, th- I guess it is Homer is using a pair of tongs to move a radioactive fuel rod. Have you ever Have you ever watched The Simpsons, Eliana? Yes. So at the beginning, he's got a pair of tongs and he is removing a radioactive fuel rod from the nuclear power plant. Those are the tongs that they're now going to yeah. use on every <laughs> every story by Taylor Lorenz as it comes through until she eventually departs the post for what I assume will be where she will end up at Vanity Fair, I assume. Mm, what is oh, the, that's a good question. What is the ultimate Taylor Lorenz trajectory? I, I've got to say Vanity Fair feels right, like writing for the hive. Ooh, no, 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 no. I got it. Teen Cosmo. What about editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue? Yeah, Teen Vogue, not Alexa Teen Cosmo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teen Vogue, I see There's that. There's no team, Teen Cosmo, but Teen Vogue is really good. Did you know, though, I found out doing research or something, that that Cosmopolitan once had a line of dairy products and yogurts? What? Yes. <laughs> oh, I want to eat that. No, I don't think you do. It was For a my, failed- my bounce-back diet? As I, as I wrote, don't, you're- you ba- you bounced bounce, all the way. I'm you bounced bounce. all the way back. I'm tr- I'm trying to. Chris is back on keto. Urgent everyone. effort to be less fat. The fat it was the guy. I was like, ooh, I don't have as much room to play with here as I thought. So yes, we are we are definitely on a meat based. Well, all Chris, the people who are switching to plant based, I'm picking up the slack over here. I am picking it up. You should come to Solid Core with me. Well, you know we should record it. And then we'll both be billionaires because the, the 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 action that would get on social media of me basically like have you ever seen one of those bears rubbing its butt up against a tree to scratch its back? That's what I would look like Why doing solid come, core. Have you ever been? No, I'm not going to Stri- solid Why? core. I only run when chased. It is undignified there's for There's no running. Well, there's no I'm not doing that. No cardio. It's that all is strength. No, it's all oh, strength. really? All strength. What do you pick up? It's all resistance training. Well, I get a lot of resistance, so. It's, it's quite hard. <laughs> that's what I'm going to start referring to this podcast yes, as. This is my resistance training. training. Yeah. Uh, I okay. like that. Okay, that's okay. good. So you think you think that Taylor Lorenz survives, keeps keeps going there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. The Post is the perfect place for her. It's like a pre-kindergarten. Poor. Uh, there are a lot of good journalists working at the oh Washington Post. Oh, my gosh. Post. It's a perfect place for her. There's a lot of good journalists working for Washington Post, but this is not. It's match made in heaven. Okay, so I want to continue with I, what I hope, because I feel bad, I hope will be the last dumping on the the last in our troika of Washington Post complaints. And this is a survey that the Washington Post did of a headline, Black Voter Support for Biden Has Cooled Poll Fines. And they commissioned a poll uh, they used Ipsos. They worked with Ipsos. And I'm not crazy about the methodology, but Samantha Samantha will make a footnote, a mental footnote of my complaints about the methodology of this poll, but that's not my complaint here. What What is my complaint is the classic unanchored statistic. So here's what it says. Roughly nine in 10 black voters support, supported Biden in the 2020 election, but a Washington Post-Ipsos poll of more than 1,200 black Americans this spring finds what appears to be diminishing support. Seven of 10 approve of Biden's job performance and fewer than one quarter strongly approve. A 60% majority of black Americans say Biden is keeping most of his major campaign promises, but 30% say he is not. Now, I'm sure that or something roughly like that is true. 
here's the problem. This very long story not only tells us nothing because of the simple fact that if you look at the number numbers for Biden among Democrats, they're basically identical. The support for Biden among all Democrats, so just for political context, black America is about 90 percent, 85 to 90 percent Democratic, roughly speaking. It varies. Some Republican candidates do better, some do worse. But basically, black America is 90 percent Democratic and has been since the 19, late 1960s. So... What? Yeah, for listeners who have been living under a rock lately, Black well, America, largely Democratic. No, 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 but the, the numbers are important here. 90%, so the black population is a, demo, a overwhelmingly Democratic population. So all this poll does is racialize answers in seeking to, to silo black voters out. They're not giving us any new information. What this survey could have done you could write a totally different thing and you could just say, interestingly, black voters feel about Joe Biden pretty much like all Democrats do. And you could you could instead of siloing black voters into a separate category and saying that they're different than most Democrats, the truth is they're the same as most Democrats and that Democrats are mostly in agreement and that they go through and talk about attitudes about Biden among younger black voters are different. And you're like, and all Democrats and all Democrats. And this is a refrain I come back to again and again. But we have to remember when you silo people and take them out for racial purposes, you are deepening racial divides and you are othering, you are creating an impression that somehow black voters are different than other voters. All American voters are American voters and that's the way it is. And this is an unanchored statistic that gives a misleading impression that somehow black America is exotic or different than, than America. It's just America. And that's also a Washington Post story. It's something. It's something, lady. Oh, Uh, so I have a question for you. Yes. So as of this recording, we are one day away from the January, the prime time. Oh, my God, from the biggest media story in history, the the, biggest news event in history. The prime time rollout of the January 6th committee. Yeah. Uh, And so here's a question. So I guess Fox says they're not gonna. They're not going to. In a surprise move, Fox is not yes. going to. <laughs> Fox is not going to do it. Wait, uh, what? They're not going to cover it uh, or take it. The other networks are going to do. I look. I think the journalistically appropriate thing to do is not just to take the whole thing and run it as a special, like some do with conventions when it's the party of your of your of your viewers' preference. But what it should do is, like any hearing, take some, analyze it, take it in bites. You program, don't let them program you, I think is the journalistically correct thing to do. My question for you is, will people watch? Will people care? Will this do, you know, Democrats, the, the, the two Republicans and the Democrats on the panel pretty clearly want to have, make an argument to independent and Republican voters. They want to make the case. Will people watch? Will people care? People might watch because it's what's on in mm-hmm. the background and people are habituated. I don't think people will care. I just don't see this moving the needle at all politically in an election where, I mean, I think the the, the Democrats' idea that January 6th is going to break through the issues that voters care about when what voters are say they care about is inflation and the economy and the idea that, like, the January 6th hearings would 
help Democrats in November, I think, is like so insane and fanciful. And that putting them in prime time would somehow make it matter more. No, I agree. I, I certainly agree as for its effect on midterms. Midterms are not going to be about any voter whose mind was changed about January. Not any voter, but most of the voters who would be moved by this issue were already moved. What I do think it could be significant for, you have a lot of Republican candidates out there who are still election deniers. You have a lot of candidates out there who are like, not a lot, but you have a significant number of Republican candidates who have a significant following that are, you know, goofy on this issue. And I think that this may have an effect on the margins for independent and Republican-leaning voters who may see this and say, yeah, we really got to, like, this is political analysis, not media analysis, but the worst liability that Republicans have, not just for 2022, but going forward, is this election denialism stuff. They got to get over it, right? They got to, like, Mo Brooks was right, which, by the way, as an aside, have you seen Mo Brooks begging for Trump to reendorse him? No. This is the most craven Trump licking that I have ever seen Trump licked. Mo Brooks, who Donald Trump dumped his endorsement for him in the Alabama Senate primary for saying that it's time for Republicans to move on from the claims of fraud from the 20 or the claims of theft from the 2020 election. Mo Brooks gets into the runoff with Katie Britt for Alabama Senate, which the, you know, the winner of the runoff is going to be the senator from Alabama. And Mo Brooks, who Trump like just like shamed. Only Ted Cruz, who Donald Trump insulted, his, said his father killed Kennedy and that his wife was ugly. Uh, only Ted Cruz can exceed Mo Brooks in cravenness and Trump licking. Mo Brooks is now back like, hey, reendorse me, Mr. President. I'm begging you to reendorse me. So I think that it will have some effect, but I agree with you 100%. It won't have an effect on the midterms. BuzzFeed. How's it going? Oof. Oof. How, how's it going, BuzzFeed? All right. Here's the New York Post headline. I'm just so – I'm actually shocked given how, like, my stocks that I own look that I don't own BuzzFeed after reading this headline. <laughs> BuzzFeed shares recoup some losses after Monday's 41% stock decline. Yeah. And the best part is that BuzzFeed shares dropped 41% the day that the ban expired that prevented executives and like the BuzzFeed employees who held BuzzFeed stock from selling their stock. So basically, the people who worked at BuzzFeed who held BuzzFeed stock had no confidence in They voted in with the their value, feet. Yeah, yep. it, with the value of the stock. So they all they all sold it, shares plummeted and yeah, the stock's a turd. The post writes stock was <laughs> the worst percentage drop in BuzzFeed's company in in BuzzFeed in the BuzzFeed company short trading history, shrinking its market cap by more than three quarters since it began trading as a public company in December. Uh, we're gonna have to ask Colin to put a financial services disclaimer at the end of this podcast that no one should take our advice oh, on they stock trades. No, no. My dad always jokes that he's like a negative indica- indicator, you know. So if he's buying, sell, and if he's selling, buy. Yeah, me too. So, you know, I guess that means buy BuzzFeed. I learned a habit from my father, which is a, is a bad one. But for my, like, little bitty funny money, like most, I, and I would just tell any young person listening, do your 401k, do your IRA, never look at it. Never look at it. Just keep dumping money in it blindly. Do not look. Do not look. And then one day you'll look when you're old and you'll go, oh, okay, that was good. But you should always, I for me, because I like to gamble, 
have a little funny money pot that I, that I like. Obviously not Jewish, Steyerwald. What's that? I don't think I maybe Jews gamble, but I don't think. Oh, it's Jews like a gamble. Real, they do. Oh my god. Well, gosh. I did not gamble. I I don't think I've ever gambled. Some of my favorite Jews are gamblers. Some of my favorite gamblers are Jews. And well, I will tell you. So my uncle used to like love to take us to Las Vegas. Okay. My my great grandmother lived there. Okay. And so my uncle would it's take a dry us. Heat. And yeah, and he would always get like you know the VIP treatment at these hotels in Las Vegas. And when I was a kid, I'd come home and tell my dad like how great it was. That oh my gosh, it was so cool. We got this and that at the hotel. <laughs> my dad would say, "Do you know how much money you have to lose to get treated like that at a hotel in Las Vegas?" I'll tell you my favorite Jews gambling story. The woman who taught me to play poker, a woman named Cece Stern. And she and her husband, Stormy Stern, my dad grew up with Stormy Stern, and they came to visit us, my family, when I was young, like eight or nine years old, and she really taught me how to play poker. And she was a great poker player, and we would play poker, and we're hanging out and playing cards and having a wonderful night. And then I hit it big. When I say I hit it big, Eliana, I'm talking really big. I had probably, I was probably up 45, 50 bucks. This is a big, it's a big pot. And I get it, I rake it in with my little arms, and I rake it into me, and I announce the following. Yawn. It's getting pretty late. I'm up past my bedtime. I better go. And Cece Stern reaches her arm out across the table and slaps it down on my hand, and she says, no, 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 no. You're not walking away from this table after winning the whole pot. So that was the great lesson I learned from Cece Stern. This could have been my favorite item of the week, Chris. <laughs> you, it's all, They're all your favorite items they, this basically, week. This it's, is, just, it's, it's just like A to Z favorite items. It's rain and could men. Could have been my favorite item. Axios with a scoop. Axios. Axios. Scoop. CNN evaluating partisan talent. And Axios reports that Chris Licht, the other Chris. The other Chris. Is evaluating whether personalities and programming that grew polarizing during the Trump era can adapt to the network's new priority to be less partisan. Why does it matter? You are asking, well, let's go to the Axios <laughs> section because I was just wondering why does this matter? Why am I'm I reading so this? I'm so glad this is in bold. Why it matters, <laughs> Colin. If talent cannot adjust to a less partisan tone and strategy, they could be ousted. Three sources familiar with the matter tell Axios. And, but, like, Tell me more. What are, are there details? Oh my gosh. Okay. Details, <laughs> colon. Lake wants to give personalities that may appear polarizing a chance to prove they're willing to uphold the network's values so that they don't tarnish CNN's, CNN's journalism brand. Okay. So, Eliana, though, now, how, can, how can I read between the lines on this, though? What can <laughs> yeah. I do to read between the lines? <laughs> um, Oh, okay. the tone became oh more God. partisan oh and combative during the Trump era under and the leadership of former CN president Jeff Zucker? Wait, I love. To conservative critics, some on-air personalities like Jim Acosta and Brian Stelter have become the face of the network's liberal shift. Is it like just to conservative to some, critics? Some that- conservatives have noticed that Brian Stelter <laughs> yeah. may lean left. They have, they, they, <laughs> some conservatives have caught on to this. But I feel dumb. How can I be smart? I'm a dummy who doesn't know anything. How can I be smart? This is... Basically, now I, I think now is when we're going to see the 180 from like anybody who doesn't want to be fired. They're going to be like finding the scandals in the Biden administration. I guess Brian Stelter may be like the next 
Brian Stelter and like Oliver Darcy will be like looking for jobs at Media Matters for America if they don't want to like do the 180? I, I, I look, I, I, I don't think, I don't think that Fox and CNN doing media criticism of each other is useful or meritorious, right? It's the dumbest. It's the thing dumbest. Ever. It's the dumbest thing. And you know my concept that there would be a Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. Of where of CNN where they just watch Fox and Brian Stelter sits there with guests and they bag on Fox and then Fox would have one where they just show, show CNN and get like you know Maria Bartiromo or whomever to sit down in front and complain about CNN and they sort of live off of it and it doesn't have any effect on anything. They should cancel, I guess. I don't. Whatever they should. Do. It you can't. I don't think there's a way to have to have what CNN wants to do with Brian Stelter in it. Yeah, challenging. 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 Challenging anyway. Or maybe, as you say, he will get religion. You'd be surprised how people can change. You'd be surprised how people change when they when the, when the inputs and the expectations change. So you never know. Or when, like, the threat is you're going to be fired if you don't. I am so deeply encouraged, I have to say. I am, oh, I don't know if I like where this is going. I am deeply encouraged that there is this voice out there, and it's Zaslav is the, is the guy at discovery and licked is the new guy at cnn and the message is the same clean it up do it right i am now part of news nation and that's the idea there and i think you know more power to them i hope i hope they succeed and i want to just talk about though i hate talking about kara swisher who is leaving to the new york times next month to go back to vox media now for those of you who do not know karen kara swisher is the once enfant terrible of the burgeoning tech coverage when she worked for the Wall Street Journal long ago in the, in the, in the run-up to the Silicon, in the inflation of the Silicon Valley bubble, she was sort of the it reporter. And I forget what, they, what she called her column, but it was like, you know, tech whatever. And Kara Swisher, who is a flatterer to power, an access journalist, who does sort of Aspen, I forget what they call it, it's like Recode or whatever it is, but they have these gatherings where she kisses Patootie and all of this stuff, and she's the ultimate sort of tech sector insider, and she's very opinionated, she's often very wrong, and the Times brought her in to be, to really like be the- Her thing is called Sway. Sway. At the Times. At the Times. So she was, so the Times was going to harness- her buzz inside. And it's funny to think now how old uh, the tech sector is and how mature it is, relatively speaking, that really we're talking about stuff that is, what, now 25 years ago, 30 years, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're approaching 30 years of, of living in this space. And her, I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to be unnecessarily negative, but it has, she has not, she has I not helped. Unnecessarily she, negative. she has not helped. And now the Times is is giving up on this, and she's going back to Vox. And I she's going back where she came from. She's going back where she came from. So noted, Chris. It is that time of the week when we talk about the stories that we can't get out of our heads. It is obsession time. And on the eve of the January sixth hearings. I have an obsession with the left-wing domestic terrorists who... I didn't even know about this. Yes. 
who are getting a total pass from the Biden administration, kid glove treatment, and their stories have been covered in the mainstream, but if the press was worth its salt, this would be covered as the Biden administration's total, complete, and absolute hypocrisy. Who are these people? I'll get to it. When it talks about its uh, concern for violence directed at the country's democratic institutions and about domestic terrorism, these are, this is the case of two privileged lawyers, uh, one a graduate of Princeton University and NYU Law School, the other a graduate of Fordham undergrad and law school, who in the George Floyd protests handed out Molotov cocktails to the crowd and firebombed a empty police car. And one of these people threw a firebomb and destroyed a police car. Correct. And they were caught on tape in before doing it, they were caught. One of them was caught on tape. Let me pull up the quote. She said, it's a man and a woman. She gave a video interview declaring, this S won't ever stop until we effing take it all down, adding that the only way the police hear us is through violence. An officer of the court. Yeah. So under the Trump administration, the lawyers reached a plea deal where they pleaded to a count that would have carried a 10-year maximum sentence, and the prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York were pressing for the 10-year And this is after maximum. they dropped a bunch of charges They dropped them, six right? of the seven charges. They reached this plea deal, and they were pushing the court to adopt a so-called terrorism enhancement. They were saying it, like, turbocharges the prosecution, and but they were saying you, th- these people should be tried as terrorists. And well, they, the they're self-described. They're self-described. Ter- she's a self-described terrorist. Right. And the U.S. Probation Office agreed with this charge. So fast forward to Joe Biden coming into office and Merrick Garland taking over as AG. And there is a new U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York, but these same career prosecutors working on the case. And those same career prosecutors do something extremely rare, which is they allow these two lawyers to withdraw the plea deal that they reached with the Trump under the Trump administration and enter a new plea on a lesser charge. And that charge carries not a 10 year maximum, but a five year maximum. They drop the terrorism enhancement. Not only that, they're asking the court to sentence the two lawyers. The plea went through the plea. The plea went so through. So they had already pleaded they guilty. They already pleaded. I see that your reporter at the charge. Beacon contacted my friend James Trusty. Yes. The great, I love James Trusty. So uh, we'll link our Beacon editorial on this. But not only that, so they withdrew the plea that's very rare and allowed them to plead to a lesser charge that carries a five year maximum. Not only that, they're asking the judge to sentence them below the sentencing guidelines. So they want these uh, lawyers to go away for 18 months. So I covered I covered federal court for some time to say that it would be to say that it would be unusual for prosecutors to revoke a plea that had already been accepted, that had already been proffered by a defendant and accepted by the court. I certainly never saw it. That's crazy. It's an amazing story. And it absolutely showcases the Biden administration's hypocrisy and the grossly political way that like they're that they're handling I also the wonder about the favoritism given their their elite the, the oh, their status all as the elites. Talk about, all yeah. the talk about 
you know, the two systems of justice that the left professes to talk about. The the, the woman in this case, she, uh, the an Obama administration intel official guaranteed her 250K bail. They have been treated with kid gloves all the way through because of their status as elite with everybody attesting to the fact that they had no prior record, et cetera, et cetera. It's everything the left professes to uh hate about the criminal justice system is on display in this case. Wowzers. <clears throat> okay, my obsession, I'm going to add, I'm, I have a question for you. First question for you. Do you know who Phil Mickelson is? Yes. Okay. Golfer. He is a golfer. He is the most successful left-handed golfer in golf history and was the leading golfer when uh, a young man named Eldrick Tiger Woods arrived on the scene in 1996 or 1997. He eclipsed Mickelson. Mickelson is uh, also unusual as a golfer. He's a pretty big guy. He's a pretty tall dude. Most golfers are compact. Most golfers are right-handed. Mickelson was excellent with all of these other things. And he, by the way, in a triumph for old dudes everywhere for the middle age, for for the dad for the dad bod set, Phil Mickelson won the PGA last year at the age of 48 or something like that. It was really great, right? So here's this story. Now, Phil, Phil Mickelson has also never been popular because there's something, and I'll say it, weird about Phil Mickelson. It's, there's, it's whatever, and people have always talked about his gambling. So basically, Tiger Woods, everybody thought was a choir boy and an angel until his wife put a nine iron through the uh, driver's side window of his Mercedes, and it was found out that he was uh, buttering the pancakes of the waitresses at, at, at IHOPs and engaged in the kind of satiriasis that would have made Bill Clinton in his prime blush. Phil Mickelson, the, the, there are always rumors about Phil Mickelson and always rumors about his gambling and always rumors about all this stuff. But but the thing, best thing you can say about Phil Mickelson, a smiley, pleasant fellow, likes the fans, is not uptight like Tiger Woods. Anyway, the big sports news, maybe the biggest sports news of the week, Eliana, is that Phil Mickelson is leaving the PGA Tour, Professional okay. Golfers Association, to join what is called the Live Golf Tour, which is backed by billionaire Saudis. And they're making- Oh my gosh, I have heard about this. Oh my gosh, okay. I've got a sports story I've that you've heard I've actually of. heard about this golf tour. Okay, so the, the Saudis have already got Justin Thomas, who was once, the, not too long ago, the number one golfer in the world. They're trying to get enough big names, reportedly offered Tiger Woods a billion dollars, a billion dollars for a broken down old Tiger Woods to come and butter their pancakes. And he did not go. But so the battle now is, and not that anybody cares about this, but there are world, there's European world golf, there's, and but the PGA is the gold standard. Saudis are making a run at the PGA. They're trying to sign these people. And Eliana, they are signing these people for like 150, yes. $130 million, it's, which is in some cases twice. Their, Phil Mickelson will make more from signing this than, almost twice what he has made in purses over his long and very, very successful career. Anyway, I tell you all of that to tell you this. It was a, jur a, a journalist that caused it to happen, and it was around a question of a off-the-record, not-off-the-record conversation. So the story is Philly is – Quoted, so there's this, and by the way, on the Inkstained Wretches all-name team, okay. I want to nominate uh, golf writer Alan Shipnuck, 
I find the name <laughs> like Shipnuck that. to be endlessly delightful. So Alan Shipnuck reports some really nasty stuff that Phil Mickelson said about the PGA and the Saudis. Here's a quote from Golf Digest, from Sports Illustrated. During an interview for an upcoming book, the backers of the proposed Saudi leagues are, quote, scary MFers to get involved with. He didn't say MFers. Mm-hmm. And that the purpose behind the Live Golf investments was the Saudi government's attempt at, quote, sports washing. Oh, that's good. He also trashed the PGA. Now, Mickelson, once this was out, found himself at big trouble because now the PGA and the Saudi, everybody's mad. Everybody's mad at Philly because of this stuff he said. Now, he said at the time that, he, and here's the quote uh, from February, although it doesn't look this way now, given my recent comments, my actions throughout the process have always been the best interest of golf, my peer sponsors, and the fans. (laughs) But, quote, there is a problem of off-record comments being shared out of context and without my consent. Then he goes on, but the bigger issue is that I use words I sincerely regret that do not reflect my true feelings or intentions. Look. Can we go back to, I mean, if I were the reporter, I'd be like, yeah, can you give us the context? Give us the context. What's tell, Yeah, tell what's us. the context for your MFers line? Like, just let them, just let them dig deeper. And the, and so the thing, I, I don't know how Shipnuck, where, where it all ended, but he, Mickelson didn't say that he was, that he was misquoted. He just said he was off the record. So a couple of things that I will say. Number one, assume you're on the record. If you're talking to Mr. Shipnuck or a journalist and you're on the phone for a guy who's writing a book and that's what he's talking to you about. So there, sometimes it, you're in a gray area. If you meet Eliana, if you are if you are out to brunch and you run into Eliana, you don't have to assume that you're on the record with her necessarily. You don't have to say if you're in a social setting, you don't have to oh, say. Oh, that drives me crazy. What's that? When people are like, this is off the record. Like I would just, you know. But I, I, I do say I do say it when I'm with other journalists sometimes because I am so, you do not have the presumption. One of the things that I will not allow is I'm talking to a politician or talking to some public figure and they say something and then afterwards say, that's off the record. No, it's not. Now, it gets blurry when you're in a non-professional setting, right? How do you handle that? Oh, I basically, if there's like a a small piece of information that I specifically don't want used, I say like, you know, obviously between us. Right. But I cannot stand when people insert off the record into like what is clearly a social setting because first of all, I probably don't care. And like assuming I care or would use it is so, I think, arrogant and annoying. So I never say that. I do it. I uh, do it. I'm, oh I'm, my gosh, I, I never do. I do, I do it because- and I hate when people do it to me because I would never take something that somebody said like, you know, at a bar or in a social setting or whatever and use it. I, I would never do that. But I also just hate the assumption that on other people's part that like, you know, just just assume I don't care. Well, but I guess what I would say is there's a standard here. It's like a, for a psychologist or a priest or whatever. If somebody told you, some, if you were out and somebody told you something that was of enormous news value and it was of great interest, right, what would you do? If you're in a social setting if and somebody was If it was a social was like, setting and it was a friend, I would ask. Right. If, so if you're in a social ask, setting and somebody's talking and they would say. Yeah, I would say, can I use that? Unless it was really, really important, at which point you'd say, I got to go with, I don't care 
It's it, it's too important. If it's and a I gotta social go with it. setting. I really would always ask. I'm sure we could imagine Unless it a was scenario. A document, right? Like the freaking Scotus leak, right? You, know, you, you could imagine not a scenario. Permission, right? You could imagine a scenario where it was like, oh yeah, Joe Biden is running an exotic animal black market scheme out of the White House. They're moving capybaras in the back, and they're t- they're stacking up cash. He's paying no taxes. There's endangered tortoises. Uh, they're eating zebra meat. I like meat. better that Hunter Biden is doing it outside. Uh, you know, well, if you've ever seen the, the nostrils on a copy, but yeah. no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going there. But the, the 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 if it was a good enough story, you might you might say I'm sorry, that's too big, and I got to go with it. But anyway, I would just tell everybody, even if you're talking to Eliana, think before you engage your mouth when you're talking to a journalist. Because that's what we do. We tell people things that other people don't want told. But in this case, Mr. Shipnuck, whatever Philly believed was off the record or not off the record, Mr. Shipnuck has created a a seismic event in the business he covers by reporting this, driving a wedge between Mickelson and the PGA, and eventually sending Mickelson into the arms of the Saudis, of those scary MFers. Chris. Hit me. It is that time. Heck yeah. We have reader mail. What do we got, lady? Leonard Goodnight writes in with a question for you, a request for you. Okay. Hello. I saw something on Jonah Goldberg's Twitter the other day, and I really hope Chris can defend his people, his people's honor. Check out the screenshots below. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Leonard Goodnight. Now, Chris, this you is, take it from here. This is this is how, if you want me to read Twitter, send it to, what's our what's the email address? Wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. So if you want me to see your tweet, send it to wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Yes. And so Mr. Goodnight has sent along the screenshot. Jonah, my... Dear friend and El Dispacho colleague said, I have so many questions about a Google Trends map that shows <laughs> that shows the most America's top spelling searches. And West Virginia's top spelling search is West Virginia. Now, look, Virginia is not the easiest word to spell, name to spell, and I would take the further step that it is subject to a potentially devastating misspelling that I have, I have, that, that editors have had to catch for me when I was writing. And when you, when you work in West Virginia, you write the name West Virginia a hundred million times. Sometimes bad things can happen, not to be confused with the pubic library, which is a mistake (laughs) that I have also made. Did I ever tell you about the time that Ben Carson was on Megyn Kelly's show and he referred to Reince Priebus as Rince Pubis. <laughs> that is one of the best. And I had to follow him directly on air and I couldn't not say anything. I had to, I, because I'm a bad person, I had to say something. That's good. So look, the, uh, <laughs> the, the rap on West Virginia for wanting to know how to spell West Virginia, I think there's some better, I think there's some worse answers here. I'll let you fill in your own joke. South Carolina doesn't know how to spell college. So, okay. Alabama doesn't know how to spell exercise. Arkansas doesn't know how to spell therapy. 
So, you know, make your own conclusions. New Mexico. Now, I sympathize with this one. Baloney. Oh, for sure. Bologna. For sure. Bologna is hard. Which, which state is that? That's New Mexico. Oh, that's good. Texas doesn't know how to spell normal, and that's a fact. But, hey, looking at you, Alaska, cheese? Really? We're struggling with cheese out there? Not sure. Not sure how that goes. And your home state, this maybe this is where you get it. Your home state, most searched spelling word in Minnesota, paparazzi. Oh, that's good. So, and Minnesota is one of the most educated states in the United States, and it's paparazzi. There you go. Which, you liked Arkansas with therapy? Arkansas is therapy. That's good. And Alabama doesn't know how to spell exercise. Yeah, I like that one, too. <laughs> any, other, uh, any others that catch your... Well, by the way, what is your spelling bugaboo? Are you a good speller or a bad speller? I'm a good speller, but I often get the meanings of... Like words where I don't even know what you call them, but like marquee can mean two different things, and there's two different spellings of marquee. Oh, like the Marquis. Yeah. Yes. And then versus marquee, like the outside. And I often like get confused which one. Homophones. Yes. And so I will Google, you know, which is which. So if you were go and look at my desk right now, you would find a humiliating and embarrassing number of times that I have written out words. I did it just yesterday where I have think about the word and then I have to write it out to see it and see if it's right. But I cannot spell colleagues. I cannot spell the word colleagues. I fail every time. Though I love my colleagues, I cannot spell it. Oh my gosh, don't tell anyone at the Washington Post. Don't come work. That's true. It would be a big break. He can't even even spell colleagues. And the other one that I can't get, I can't spell and infer in this anything you want, I can't spell privilege. Every time I try to spell privilege, because it's P-R, it's I's, right? Yes. And I want it to be privilege, and it's privilege, and I fail every time. It is now time, Chris, for your favorite item of the week. Finally, one for you. <laughs> Where I am forced to say something nice, which I don't think I have actually done this week, but you are going to lead by example. What do you got? What do you got this week? Okay. One of the mottos that I follow and tell reporters, first, write what you know, but number two, pack it with detail. Here's New York Times story. The bachelorette party comes for Scottsdale. Now, you would not say, this is a Chris Steyerwalt story. Chris is out there looking for bachelorette party coverage, an institution I abhor, and you would not think so. This piece, and I want to credit Allie Jones, and the photography by Cassidy Arazia. It is one of the best things I have read in forever. The story, so apparently, and Samantha has, you have bacheloretted at, in, in, in Scottsdale. So Scottsdale is a tonier area outside of Phoenix. It's in Maricopa County. It's like where Indian Wells is, is up that way. And it used to be like, you know, for people who want to play tennis, and tan themselves. I say the people, the rich people in Arizona look like uh, Slim Jims. They're deeply tanned. They're super skinny and kind of wrinkly. And that's who, that's who used to be there. Well, now Scottsdale is a bachelorette party. It is, it is blowing past Nashville. I had no idea the size of the industry, but I want to read you this one paragraph packed with detail as well appointed as a rental property may be. Most bachelorette parties, of course, involve leaving the house. Ms. Cooper, 
the bride from Dallas. And this is a girl who is appearing in the New York Times, much to I'm sure her family's delight, in a yeah. in a sparkly bathing suit, getting drunk, cheersing with disco ball shaped cups. And I love there's one picture where she's cheersing with her uh, thing and the the cross of our Lord Jesus is tattooed on her wrist as she is there celebrating the bachelorette experience I in Phoenix. I do love this pool, like, inner tube that's like a uh, diamond ring. That it, thing is cool. Well, I well, I want to know about your bachelorette party after I read you this paragraph. As well appointed as a rental property may be, most bachelorette parties, of course, involve leaving the house. Ms. Cooper, the bride from Dallas, planned a detailed itinerary for her group of 11 before landing in Scottsdale. It included a 4.30 a.m. hot air balloon ride followed by a boozy picnic, $197 per person, a desert Jeep tour, $125 per person, brunch at a Hamptons-themed restaurant called The Montauk, and a, quote, wig night out at nightclubs in Old Town. Saints preserve us. I mean, oh, my gosh, a wig party. And by the way, who, why would you have a Hamptons-themed restaurant in the desert? So many questions. This piece was fascinating, interesting, funny. And one of the things I really liked about it was it did not descend into mockery. I would have struggled not turning this into a hit piece. But while it, it, it treats it as a – not a, it doesn't legitimate or illegitimate. What it does is it treats it as a subculture well, and just goes and talks about it. Well, with it really show, don't tell. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The photography is amazing. Did you have a bachelorette party? I I had to cancel my wedding because of COVID, and then we rescheduled it. And so my bachelorette party was literally in my sister's apartment. Okay. It was me, my sister, and one other person, and it was freaking amazing. Did you have a wig night? <laughs> did you did you take a hot air us. balloon through the desert? It was the three of us. It was really fun. Oh, I bet it was fun. You're uh, good. All right. My favorite story of the week was the... So my pet peeve, in addition to, like, journalists being like, this is off the record. Yes. Uh, it's not journalists, actually. It will be lawmakers, too. Like, off the record, just so you know. But is Please continue to using, say it to me, though. Using their blue check marks to rage tweet at, like, restaurants or airlines. And so I loved when I saw this Wall Street Journal headline. Read this before you rage tweet at your airline. And the upshot of the story is basically that travel is so messed up this summer that even rage tweeting at airlines is not enough to have any <laughs> problem solved. And it features a tweet by some guy who says, he writes, waiting for Daisy at at Delta to make things right, question mark. What is happening at Delta? And Delta, the official Delta account, <laughs> responds, can you calm down and allow me some time to work, please? Good for, so good for Delta. That. Good for you, I Daisy. Good for you, Daisy. And I agree with you. Not just, it, It's particularly bad when it's journalists because they have a public trust, that they enjoy a public trust, or they should hope to enjoy a public trust and they should act better. But people who complain about their travel conditions or their meal or anything on Twitter should just, you know, get on a hot air balloon with the girls from Dallas. It's it's too late, right? Like, get over yourself. Like, as I as I tell my children, Eliana, quite frequently, and one day you'll get to tell your daughter, when they, when they speak to you of the travails of existence, you will get to say, well, life is full of suffering. Well, work harder <laughs> for that private jet. <laughs> That's definitely the Eliana Johnson solution.
that is all the time we have left for dramatic readings and the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts with an S dot com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.